right, Judges chapter 3. We're going to try to finish up the account of Ehud today. Uh, possibly one of the more unique of the judges that we are going to cover uh, in this particular book. Go to uh, Judges chapter 3 and look at verse 12. We're gonna, not going to necessarily recap everything we did last week, but we are going to reread the verses that we covered last week to get ourselves caught back up. Uh, verse 12, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and, the, and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And we're going to pause for just a minute. Mentioned this last week. Moab is a relatively new country in this whole scheme of history in this particular area. They've been around at this point for about 50 to 60 years. So let's give them like two generations. Does that make sense? About that 50 to 60 year marker. So they are kind of the new guy here. And in that whole era of history, the way you made a name for yourself was by spreading your kingdom. You went from your city-state, your one little individual city-state, to conquering those around you and conquering and conquering and just trying to amass as much land, as much people, and as much stuff as humanly possible. Which, by the way, we still do the same stuff today. Just thought I'd throw that out there. So what does Moab do? He's not going to be able to take on the children of Israel. Comparative size would be like Rhode Island taking on California. Quite literally, if you actually look at physical size of Moab at this time, as well as the total number of people, is Rhode Island going to win that fight? No, Rhode Island would lose a fight to Connecticut because we're better anyways, okay? So they actually add some friends here. They added the children of Ammon and Amalek, okay? Ammon is northeast of Moab and roughly the same age. So again, got something to prove, if you will, on this on the world stage here. And the Amalekites, we've already talked about them repeatedly. The, they become a kind of a thorn. They've become a thorn in the Israelite side for a, quite a bit now. We're talking two to three generations. Joshua fought them more than once. They've already been a, a problem here with the uh, the children of Israel after the after Joshua. They be they stay a problem until we get all the way into like First Samuel right, with David. David finally starts to actually wipe out the Amalekites. So Moab did the Eglon. We got to give this dude some credit. He was smarter than we sometimes think. He got a bunch of people that hated the same people. Enemy of my enemy is my friend. He got a whole bunch of people that hated the Israelites. Why? Because they'd taken over whole chunks of land. They just showed up and all of this stuff, quite literally in some instances, fell in their lap like Jericho. And the Bible tells us at the end of verse, or about, yeah, at the end of verse 13, they possessed the city of palm trees, which is what city again? Jericho. Why would they have taken Jericho? I mentioned this last week. It was still probably the biggest city in this entire area, so that's the prize. Whether the walls have fallen down or not, everybody knew where Jericho was. Are we okay? Jericho is also really strategically positioned on what river? The Jordan. Remember the Jordan parted, they crossed, and they're literally like Jericho was there. Okay, so it's strategically placed. So he takes over this. Verse 15, but the, when, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him, the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, king of Moab. They've been in servitude for 18 years. Finally start crying out to God. God sends them a deliverer. Here's a thought I didn't bring up last week. 
How long did it take them to finally start crying out to God? Did it take them 18 years? Because according to this, so when the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years, that's verse 14, but when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up and delivered them. The way that's written, when, am I correct? Is that verse in your, is that word in your verse there, verse 15, but when? That gives the idea that it took them 18 years to finally ask God for help. How dumb are we? Yeah, really dumb. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was a good response, okay? Really dumb. Could you imagine? You're in straight-up servitude for 18 years, and finally, you know what? I don't like this anymore. Shouldn't that have been like, you know, day two? Like literally the morning of day two. God, I don't like this anymore. Can we be done? I'm sorry. How many of you ever gotten in trouble and, and the regret sets in instantaneously? Yeah, theirs took a... 18, guys, 18 years is, is, a, is the marker of a single generation. It took them a generation to finally like, huh, I don't like that guy. People are dumb. I just thought I'd throw that out there. The Bible proves it. I love how real the Bible is. The Bible tells us people are dumb. Congratulations, we are too. All right, so now they've got this deliverer. And it, here's what's intriguing to me, and I did mention this a little bit last week. Ehud is a Benjamite. Benjamin was the smallest tribe. How do we know that Benjamin was the smallest tribe? King Saul. He told us himself. He's, I am of the smallest family of the smallest tribe. Why am I being chosen to be king? Remember that from the beginning of 1 Samuel? So here's the thought. At the end of verse 15, if the children of Israel are sending a present to Eglon, this would be their tribute, their taxes, if you will. Why are they choosing a guy from the smallest tribe? Isn't that a weird thought? Wouldn't you want to be sending somebody from Judah, the biggest, most powerful tribe? But they sent a guy from the smallest tribe. Why? Because God can use whoever he wants to use, whenever he wants to use them, however he needs to use them. And God's proving that in spades right here. Look at verse 16 with me. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And when he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon, uh, and he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So Ehud makes this dagger. And I mentioned this last week, which means Ehud had to have worked on this plan for quite some time. He made this thing by hand. I ordered this on Amazon. It took me 48 hours to get this lovely piece of machinery. Okay? I, I had to put in some serious work for this, though. Do you know how long I had to Google search for this? About 19 seconds. It was really long, guys. Okay? I, I slaved over that. My thumb, my thumb really hurt after I hit that button, you know, four times. Whew. Ehud had to actually slave and work to make this dagger. Think about this, though. Ehud's an actual slave. He's in servitude. Do you usually let your servants have arms? No? Why? Because then they fight back, and they earn their freedom. Welcome to the world. Meaning he made this thing in secret. Ehud worked really hard in secret for a long time to make this. And again, 
The Bible just does tell us here of a cubit length. Whether that's the edges of the blade or the entire thing, a cubit length. I chose to have a cubit length because it looks cooler, okay? All right, but either way, whether it was from here to the end long or this entire length, that's still a fairly large weapon. We okay? So he's got this, and he's been working on it, and he makes this present. End of verse 18, he sent, he being Eglon, sent the people away that bear the present, meaning Ehud was not alone, okay? In order to pass off an entire nation's taxes in person, this was a large entourage of human beings. Are we okay? Think about the United States of America. We owe $31 trillion. That's some serious credit card debt right there. Most of that to China. If we had to pay that back in physical format, it would take the entirety of the U.S. Navy and the Air Force carrier ships to hold all of those dollar bills. And they'd have to make a couple trips. So this likely is actually a fairly large group of people that are with him here. Look at verse 19. But he himself turned again. So Ehud leaves with the whole group, turns around from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. So Ehud at some point Turns around, makes the trip back, and tells the king, hey, I got something I need to tell you. I got some, I got some information that you are going to want to hear. Now think about this. This guy, e Eglon, has been in charge for 18 years. Is he the sole person in charge? Yes or no? No. Remember, Ammon and Amalek were his helpers, meaning he's got three enemies. He's got the Israelites that he's got in servitude for almost two decades, but he's got two others that are kind of splitting this prize. So my, this is Bishology, okay? Pure and simple. Ehud could have very easily walked in and, hey, I got some information about Ammon and Amalek. Where Benjamin was physically located was closer to where the Amalekites were. He might have just, hey, I've got some information you're going to need to hear. Look at the king's response. Keep silence. Wait a second. Hang on. And all that stood by him went out from him. Eglon's not, again, he's, he's an intelligent man here. You, you don't know who could be a spy. This is in an era where the king had a cupbearer, somebody who had to taste all of his food and drink to make sure he wasn't being poisoned because that was a regular problem. So these guys are super paranoid all the time. My stress levels are high. I can't imagine being in charge and afraid that everybody was going to kill me. I'm pretty sure I've had a few teachers, students, and maybe even staff think about it before, okay? But I don't usually have to, like, taste test my food for poison. If so, I'd go through a lot more dogs, okay? It'd be a problem here. Or snakes, one of the two, okay? Uh, I don't eat rats, though, so thank the Lord, okay? Ehud comes in here, and look at verse 20, and Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a, a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. So Ehud and Eglon are alone in this, whatever this summer parlor is, this, this small area uh, of the castle or the king's house, if you will. The idea of castle, 
by the way, just to sidetrack for a split second, you and I have this like Disney princess castle in our brain every time we think of what kings lived in. Outside of like Solomon and a handful of Roman emperors mentioned in your Bible, most of the kings in this era didn't live in houses quite like you and I think of. Right? Their, their palaces were bigger than average because, and, and we're talking like the king's palace may have had the square footage of this room. That's, that's actually very realistic because most people lived in a one-room house that was about five, 600 square feet for a whole family. It was not uncommon, and, and a king's palace being as big as this room would have been lavish at the time. There were a handful. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, later on in the Bible, had a massive uh, palace built, but many did not. And you also got to remember, Eglon is in the ruins of what had been Jericho. This is only about 75-ish years after Jericho, 80 years after Jericho's walls fell down. This isn't the prettiest place in the world to go. Are we okay? But he is hanging out in some kind of a summer parlor. Ehud comes in and just, again, I mentioned this last week. This is like action movie type stuff right here. I have a message from God unto thee. You could just, he's got to have this like deep movie announcer voice, you know, probably an Irish accent uh, buried down in there. And he just like, I've got this message. And he's like, oh, what, what, what? And just bam, and he stabs him. Somebody, please, if you know how to make movies, turn this into a movie. It'd be really gross, but I'd watch it a lot, okay? This just is amazing. Pastor, can I borrow you for a minute? No? I'm not going to stab you. This is payback. No, I'm kidding. All right? Can you? You are left-handed. Okay? The Bible actually tells us. Here, I'll give you the sheath and everything. He had this on his right thigh. And if you actually look back with me, uh, let's see here. On verse 16, I didn't mention this last week. So this Bible says he did gird it under his raiment. We're not doing that today, okay? All right, but if you can kind of put this underneath your jacket. And on his right thigh, most of us, I mentioned this last week, would think of a, like a, something especially this long kind of tilted towards the back so that you can slide that out this way. But the Bible says it was on his thigh. Remember, he's hiding this. He's not carrying this openly. He's in servitude. The idea of having a blade like this would have been a huge no-no. So he's got this thing hidden under his clothes under his robes, under, and, and a lot of times in this era, they wore multiple very thin layers because it helped keep the sun off of them. You do realize in this area of the world, they can get high temperatures, and the Bible tells us that Ehud, or Eglon, is in his summer parlor, giving us, by the way, a time of year when this took place. You don't go to your summer parlor in the winter. Think of this as like a, a three-season room, Okay. He is here in the middle of summer. That area of the world can hit 140 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. They'd wear a lot of thin layers to try to keep the sun off of them to keep them from getting sunburned. We good so far? So Ehud's got this on his right thigh. Can you pull that out for me? Okay. That's, a, that's, that's, that's not exactly the most fluid movement, is it? Not at all. In order to do this and do this quickly and then stab Eglon, thank you, that was actually all I needed. Way easier than the illustrations you've used me for. Giving us the idea here, Ehud's practiced this a lot. A lot. I am not a fan in any way, shape, or form for this guy's acting or as a human being, but if you've ever seen anything with Jim Carrey in it, the dude's got a rubber face. 
Like he has a an amazing ability to move his face in ways that the rest of us are like, how do you do that? Because he literally spends hours in front of a mirror practicing until he figures out the exact muscle groups to move to control it in such a way. Got to imagine Ehud probably did that same thing. Can, can I give you a little bit? This is that dorky junior high kid that like, you know, practices with his lightsaber in the basement just in case that ever becomes a real fight. Are we okay? I know that's a weird visual, but if you've ever seen anything like that, that is this kid, okay? And Ehud has had, had, to, have, had to have been practicing this for absolutely months to nail this down. Why? He's got one shot. One chance. Literally, this one chance is life or death for Ehud. He completes his mission or he dies and Israel is not free. This is huge. So I can make a joke about him, but most of us have never been put in, an, in a situation like anything like this, where literally we fail and we die. You do realize if he dies, likely his family gets put to death. And the servitude they're under gets worse. So this, by the way, is also a perfect example that every action we take affects everybody around us. Let's keep moving here. Verse 22, the haft also went in after the blade. So he stabs in, remember the Bible tells us he's a very fat man. But the haft, that's the handle, goes all the way up in. He can't get it back out. The fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. More than likely, perforated his intestines, his colon, and all of his, uh, the contents of such started coming out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. This gives us the idea, the porch, he goes out through the window. Okay? He's already in there. You, you wouldn't, you don't think that Eglon already had the main doors locked and closed to make sure that he got out? Locks the door, goes out. When he had gone out, his servants came, and the door. Uh, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covereth his feet in the summer chamber. Not to be gross, but the Bible's being super realistic here. His servants thought he was using the bathroom. Okay? And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. I mentioned this last week. Can you imagine being those servants? That's an awkward place to be in. The doors are locked, and you're like, ah, he's probably using the restroom. The Bible says they waited till they were ashamed. They tarried. They waited. You go check on him. No, you go check on him. I'm not... I'm not disturbing him while he's doing that. You, you go check on him. No, you go check on him. It's your turn. I did it last time. There had to have been something like that. Why? Because human beings are involved, and none of us want to be the one that gets in trouble, especially with the king. Finally, it says, until they were ashamed, they're like, okay, somebody's got to go check on him. It's been checking my sundial. It's been like six hours. we got to go check on this guy. This, this is way. And they unlock it, and they're like, oh, we should have checked a long time ago. And he's fallen down dead, verse 26. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. Okay, we've got Ehud coming in with a whole group of people. He is coming in under the guise of something positive. Eglon is getting all of his tribute. He's getting all of his money, all of his taxes. By the way, nowhere in this account is any of that ever recouped. Just thought I'd throw that in there. So Ehud kind of sneaks in under the radar comes back and, hey, I, I've got something to tell you. Whatever that secret was, 
I have a secret errand unto thee, is what the Bible says. We don't know what Ehud's secret was. We can guess all day long, and they're all positive guesses, but I, I don't know. Tells Ehud, or Eglon, I've got a message from God, and that message is quite literally the sword of the Lord at that point. Ehud runs away. Both times, by the way, here in verse 19, it says the quarries that were by Gilgal, and then again at verse 26, and passed beyond the quarries. I mentioned this last week. A lot of Jewish historians believe that that was the area where all the stones had been taken out when Joshua made his monuments at the edge of the Jordan River. And here's why we think this. He's in Jericho. That monument that they built after they crossed the Jordan River would have been right nearby. Are we okay? Giving us at least an indication that more than likely that's where he's coming in and out of. This is where we left off. God's message to Eglon was a pretty violent one. Sometimes God's message to us can be a fairly violent one. The Bible does describe itself as the sword of the Lord, cutting asunder. Sometimes we have to excise or remove things in order to follow God. So that sword's got to be sharp, it's got to be two-edged, and sometimes it's deadly. And in this case, it definitely was. Let's actually kind of finish this up for a little bit. Here's something to think about, though. Is this God giving approval to assassinate bad leaders? No. Here's why I believe that's true. Can anybody show me at any point where Ehud is being spoken of that the Bible says, and the spirit of the Lord came on him? Anybody? No. Ehud's one of the few judges throughout your Bible that the spirit of the Lord is not ever described as coming on him. Why? Maybe God's not a fan of assassination. He might not have been a fan of Ehud's methods. Which gives us some indication, by the way, Ehud may have been a very harsh judge. You ever thought about that? If that's the way he's dealing with his enemies, how is he going to deal with the God's people doing wrong? They may have gotten deliverance from their enemy but they may have had a very harsh judge. And he was a judge for a long, long time. Look at uh, verse 30. We're going to jump ahead just a touch here. Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. Ehud was a judge for 80 years, which gives us one more piece of information about Ehud that we have not previously talked about. Ehud was probably a very young man, which may be why he chose such a violent method to deal with the problem. The younger we are, the dumber the decisions we tend to make. Am I okay with that? I mean, think back on your own life, the younger you were, were your decisions always extremely well thought out, logical plans towards the future? No, it was, I do this and it's done. And again, Ehud had to have practiced with his dagger in order to pull that out with the right hand and the stabbing, giving us an indication that this is a young dork in his mom's basement playing with swords. And then also, if he was the judge for 80 years, unless he lived some exceptionally long life, even if he was 20 years old, this guy was 100. That's a long, long time. Just some thoughts. Go back to verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. 
Ehud must have been a decent leader because he's been working on this plan. Remember, he had to make this dagger by hand. He's had to practice with it to make sure he could get the movement down because he had one shot at this. But he's been planning this with help. Remember, he went with a whole group of people. As soon as this takes place, he blows a trumpet, and he's got an army. Have you ever actually read that and thought through that? Meaning, Ehud's had this whole thing planned, and it's not just an assassination. This is a whole coup, and they win, according to the Bible, by the way, verse 30, that day. This might have been one of Israel's shortest wars on record, because it took a day. That's intriguing. Gives us the idea that Ehud must have been a decent leader as a young man. He may have been a bit harsh based on his methods, but he was a decent leader. Are we okay with that? If he's got this whole army ready to go at the blow of a trumpet, and he comes down, look at verse 28. And he said unto them, follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. Again, Israel's been under some level of servitude now for 18 years. Do you usually arm servants and slaves? No, meaning these guys are more than likely using some type of handmade tools, think like farm equipment, to win this war. By the way, I think I can prove that they were using farm equipment to win this war. Go with me to verse 31. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad. That's a long, pointy stick used in farming. Giving us the idea that more than likely, again, you don't arm slaves. And I'm almost 100% certain if an entire army of Israelites had been making swords and daggers for months like Ehud had had to make, somebody would have picked up on that. Wouldn't that have made logical sense? More than likely, Ehud had to tear apart a plow or a hoe or some other farming equipment in order to melt it down and make the dagger in the first place. If the whole army had been doing that, you would have thought that the guys in charge would have started to figure something out here. And they win this war likely, I'm using that word on purpose, with farm equipment. And here's why this is incredible. Look at verse 29. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men. And then the Bible describes these men, all lusty and all men of valor. These guys were strong, courageous, and tuned for battle. And the Israelites took them out. That's that, the terms, lust, all lusty and men of valor. This wasn't, they had eyes inappropriately towards other women. This is giving the idea that not only were they men of valor, they were courageous. These guys were ready and primed for battle. They were ready to kill at a moment's notice. And the Israelites took them out. Again, verse 30, that day. This is a huge deal. This is a massive deal. And we'd only ever take the time to talk about Ehud stabs a fat guy. And poop comes out, and ha, 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 that's funny, that's gross. 
Israel won a battle because they chose to follow the leader God put in place. You would have thought that this here, as judge number two, should have been a good indicator to the Israelites. Let's do what's right from now on, because when we do, we win. But they don't. At some point, by the way, again, verse end of verse 30, the land had rest four score years. That's 80 years. Even if, I mentioned this earlier, even if Ehud was as young as, say, 20 years old when he does all of this here, by the time we're getting towards the end of this, he is a very old man. Okay? I like to make fun of old people, but 90 to 100 is, that's old. That's even got all of you beat by a long shot. That's old. Ehud's not the man he was when he won this war. Are we okay? So God sends somebody in to help keep the peace. That's verse 31. This is the only judge that there is a single verse about. He's the shortest as far as total amount of information. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. This, by the way, according to, and I followed all kinds of different timelines the best I possibly could here, Shamgar more than likely took place sometime, like I said, near the end of Ehud's tenure as a judge. And there is actually no indication outside in the Bible or in Jewish history that Shamgar himself actually served as a judge as far as like judging the children of Israel as one of their leaders. Are we okay with that? There's just, there's no indication. It, 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 nowhere in here does it say that he actually physically judged them, does it? It says he delivered Israel, meaning they got attacked one more time by the Philistines and he was the one God chose to actually deliver them from an attack. But more than likely, Ehud was the judge during this. Are we, are we okay? The fact that the Bible gave us his name and his one singular deed is of massive importance though because sometimes all it takes is one person one time to change the course of history well what I what the, you, you don't know me I, I, I don't I don't do that much one person one time can change somebody's life how many famous preachers throughout all of history came in contact with one person told them about Jesus. And that person, we barely know as a blip on the radar, but the person they led to the Lord changed the world. One person, one time. And by the way, this dude, this dude was boss. He killed 600 Philistines. You realize Philistines, that's where Goliath of Gath, the man who's like a walking tank, comes around later on. No lie, his armor weighed hundreds of pounds. He had a man with a giant shield in front of him. This was like a two-man tank. He takes 600 of these dudes out with a pointy stick. Guys, that's like Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee put together here. This is just psycho stuff right here. Again, if you ever turn this into a movie, I want to see this. Could you imagine 600 armed soldiers and you killed them with a stick? Okay, granted, it's a really big stick. He's not using a number two pencil, okay? An ox goad was about eight feet long, about that big around and pointed on one end. I mean, this is, you get stabbed with that and there is a gaping hole in your chest. He's doing some serious damage. But Shamgar's a unique human being here. And again, the only thing we can talk about him is the fact that God used this one guy to deliver Israel and God thought that was worth remembering. We can all pinpoint somewhere in our lives where one person 
made a difference that changed us. By the way, for the good or for the bad. We tell this to teenagers all the time, but we forget to tell adults, your decisions have consequences, good or bad. Now, those don't determine if you go to heaven or hell, but they determine your effect and your testimony on those around you. So what are you going to do today? Moms, dads, grandmas, and grandpas, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do? Where are we going to work? How are we going to influence somebody that can help the next generation? Because this group, we're the oldest ones in the church. We will be passing off this scene sooner rather than later. So there's a whole bunch of people on the other side of this building that we have to leave this church and this ministry and the lessons in this Bible to. How are we going to do that that's going to have the biggest impact and the biggest effect on them? Because every one of us in this room impacts somebody on that end of the building every single day, whether we like it or not. We have to decide, is that going to be good or is it going to be bad? Are you going to be that illustration that some pastor has to get up and talk about 20 years from now? Man, they loved God. They did this. They did that one time and they ruined their life. Out of church, kids out of church. Are you going to be that person? They were here faithfully for 40, 50 years and their kids are here and their grandkids are here. One of their grandkids is pastoring over here and doing. We tell teenagers all the time, but we forget about the adults. We're still making decisions on a daily basis. So what's it going to be good or bad? Shamgar did one thing and he delivered his people. And God chose to give him to us because one decision can make a huge difference. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us.